particular places and names that first that the, this first Isaiah could not have known. They must have been written by a second Isaiah later on and just stuck together in one book. Unfortunately for them, that logic is deeply flawed. And I could give many reasons, but I'm going to just briefly name two this morning for the sake of time. The first is in the New Testament, portions of both the first and second half of Isaiah are attributed to the same guy. And if you want a a great example of that, you can look at uh, the, the book of John chapter 12 for an example, where you see a portion of the first half and the second half of Isaiah used right together. And Jesus says that was one man. So that's the first problem. The second problem with their logic, and perhaps an even more compelling one, is that if you actually read Isaiah, either half, you quickly come away with a picture of a very, very big God who seems to have absolutely no trouble creating all things, reversing the setting of the sun, conquering entire nations, and having virgins give birth. So... Would it really be too much to say that this same God couldn't have instructed Isaiah about the things that have not yet taken place? I invite you to judge for yourselves this morning as we read the first chapter of so-called Second Isaiah. Let's read the first 11 verses. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, excuse me, and every mountain and hill be made low, and uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This passage, 1 through 11, is bookended in comfort, in tender words and imagery. We learned that the battle is over, that the punishment for sin has passed, and that Yahweh is gathering his flock like a shepherd. Yet with such tenderness comes a display of truly awesome power. Verse 4, valleys are raised, mountains are leveled. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it. None of those mountains and valleys that would have obscured him are there anymore. Everybody's going to see him. And then in verse 10, 
Behold, the Lord God comes with might. Behold, behold. And according to verse 6, we will not only see it with our eyes, we will hear it with our ears. That is what is cried out. All people, like the grass, will wither and fade, but the word of God will stand forever. That is, if Yahweh, the Lord, has spoken it, it's as good as done. Now, our words are not like that. We may say we'll do this or that, but all kinds of things can interrupt our plans, especially if you have young children, or especially if you own a 20-year-old car. And woe to you if you transport children in a 20-year-old car. (laughs) But Yahweh is not restricted by such things or anything ever. Now, why does that matter? Well, for one, if God's word is forever, then why should we doubt that second Isaiah could have been written to the exiles in Babylon before they were exiles in Babylon? That's easy for him because his word stands forever. But why did Yahweh direct Isaiah to share this message in these poetic words right here at this turning point in the book? It is this, so that we would all sit up straight, open our eyes, open our ears, and here so that we could pay full attention because Yahweh, the Lord, has some questions for us. And here they are. Let's pick up in verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines, coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. 
He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. After reading passages like that, I'm often tempted to just be like, well, we're done here. I cannot improve. I cannot offer more than what is already here. And I just want to pray and be done. But I could probably say a couple things. Verse 12 asks, Who is like Yahweh in vastness? He gathers all the oceans and the rivers and the lakes, and they fit right here, right here in his hand. He compares the distances between galaxies like this. There's one, there's one, there's one. He weighs the dust, all the dust of the earth, no problem. He weighs all the mountains, in the same way. It's just as easy. Can anyone or any, anything else do that? And verse 13 asks, Who is like Yahweh in understanding? Does any creature exist who could teach him something? One who could offer some insight on a problem that has him perplexed. Or to share some hidden knowledge that he does not know. Can anything or anyone offer him that? Verse 15 continues. Okay, what if we gather together all the nations, billions upon billions upon billions of peoples and cities and technology? They're like a drop from a bucket. They're nothing. They're, they're merely more of the dust that he weighed earlier. In fact, throw in all the trees of the world, all the giant trees of Lebanon, it says, and take all the animals, take everything, throw it on those scales, toss it all on. It's still less than nothing in significance compared to Yahweh. So verse 18 asks, to whom then will you liken God? Give us some point of comparison. We can't even fathom this kind of thing. And so, verse 19 says, ah, what about idols? Idols are kind of like Yahweh. Yahweh's a god. Idols are gods too, right? Well, in fact, let's not even talk about the little idols, the pathetic one. Let's talk about the really nice idols, okay? The works of true craftsmanship overlaid with gold or at least made of really, really nice wood. All that work, All that planning and craftsmanship and resource investment. And in the end, what you get is a really, really nice looking paperweight. Nice God you got there. Holding down your papers. 
Verse 21, therefore, begs of us to answer these questions. Do you not know? Do you not hear? This is not complicated. Yahweh is a very, very big God. And this is not a new idea. Listen, people of Judah, hasn't it been told you from the beginning? Haven't all of you understood this from the very beginning? But perhaps we need a little refresher. Okay, here we go. Verse 22. Yahweh sits above the circle of the earth. I love that. Everything we know, our entire lives, everywhere we've lived, and where we want to live, where we dream about going on vacation, where generations who may come after us will spread out all along the world, it's just a circle. Those of you who have paper in front of you and a pencil or pen in hand, do me a favor, draw a circle as big as you want. Don't worry, I'll wait. That circle that you just drew, that's everything. Everything on the earth from Yahweh's perspective. Yet we think we're such a big deal. (laughs) We're not. But Yahweh, Yahweh is a very, very big God. And here's another illustration from that same verse. Next time you close a curtain, whether it's over a window or over your shower, remember that that's how God handles the universe. Shoof. That's everything. Stars and galaxies and nebulas and pulsars and a bazillion things that we do not understand. Foom. Child's play. That's it. Now, we may talk about that like we understand what's going on out there in the cosmos, but we don't. Adam, could you hit the lights for me for just a moment? Let me show you guys something. You recognize this? These are called the pillars of creation. So you might have a conversation that goes something like this. What's that thing there? Oh, we call it the pillars of creation. It's really beautiful. Yeah. What does it do? Well, you see, it's a star nursery. Stars are are born there. Wow. So what's it made of? Uh, Dust and gas. Pretty much everything out there is dust and gas. Well, how does it work? How do you, how do you make a star? Well, um, <clears throat> gravity, probably gravity. Cool, what's gravity? Oh, well, gravity is the uh, force of attraction between two masses. Now, I seem to remember reading, though, that, like, didn't Einstein prove that it's not that? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, technically, gravity is a, is a warping of space-time affected by an object's quantum properties. It's like from Ant-Man or something? Like, did you just make that up? Do you have any idea what quantum properties are? No, no, we have no idea. We have absolutely no clue what that is. Okay, gravity is everywhere. Like, we, it's not like gravity happens once in a while and we're like, well, we don't really know how to observe that or test that. This is gravity. You can make gravity all around you happen. Like, that's it. And we don't know what it is. Isn't that kind of embarrassing? Shumph. That's simple for God. That's so simple. This was easy. Making stars is easy. Shumph. That's it. And we have no idea 
anything about dust or gravity or the creation of stars or quantum mechanics. Yahweh is a very, very big God. Thanks, Adam. You can hit those lights. Here's what verse 26 says about those very stars. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. That's how stars are born. And so, verse 27 asks a very reasonable follow-up question. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, saying, My way is hidden from Yahweh, and my right is disregarded by my God? Do you think that a God this big doesn't see you? Do you think he doesn't know? Whether you are in light or in the darkness, he sees it. What, what you do in public or what you do behind closed doors, he knows it, no matter where you are. What you shout from the rooftops or what you whisper when you think no one is listening, he hears it. Whether you're sitting at home or you're in exile in Babylon. What you think and believe and feel and desire and dream about that you've never told another soul, he understands it better than you do. So why do you talk like he doesn't know? Verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? You should have, Jacob. You're God's people. You've been told this all your lives. Do you not know these things? Yahweh is the everlasting God. You are not. The nations are not. Idols are not. Yahweh is the creator of the ends of the earth. You are not. The nations are not. Idols are not. Yahweh does not faint or grow weary. You do. All nations do. All rulers do. Idols don't, but that's because idols don't do anything. Yahweh's understanding is unsearchable. Your understanding is altogether searchable. Your hidden ways are fully known to him, as are all the ways of all the peoples and all the dust and all the stars across all galaxies, across all time. In short, friends, Yahweh is a very, very big God, and there is none like him. Now, for some of us, that's an absolutely terrifying thought. We don't really want Yahweh knowing all that stuff. We prefer our ways hidden from him, just like they're hidden from everybody else. And knowing that he is coming in power is not an especially comforting thought. Because we are worthy of judgment. The first half of Isaiah thus far has taught us that Yahweh judges all. And that is true. Yahweh does judge all. He will judge all. But that judgment comes up against those who need to be lowered in their thinking. Against those who say, my way is hidden from Yahweh as though we ourselves had infinite power and he did not. But what of those of us who need not be lowered, but rather raised? What of those of us who do not fear Yahweh's strength, but rather yearn for it 
Listen, to the wolf and to the unruly sheep, the strength of a shepherd is terrifying. But to a lost, weary, and weak sheep, the strength of that same shepherd is altogether wonderful. Look with me again at verse 29. Here is what our shepherd does with his power. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. So what does Yahweh do with his infinite power? He gives it to us. Verse 30, even youths shall faint and be weary. And in a home with four young boys, I assure you that that does not happen easily. But young men shall fall exhausted. They will, and they do. But they who wait for the Lord, for Yahweh, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Do you see, friends? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh comes not just in power and glory, but in comfort. Yahweh comes not just in judgment, but in restoration. With inexhaustible strength, he chooses to carry his weak lambs. All of us. And we never feel heavy to him. We never do. Your burdens and baggage do not weigh him down. Even when you struggled with the same sins for the 100th time, or prayed the same prayer for the 10,000th time. And with unsearchable understanding, he knows every one of your past sins including ones that you yourself have forgotten or overlooked. He knows the sins you committed on the way to church this morning, as well as every sin you will commit an hour from now, a month from now, a decade from now. And yet, he's offering to carry you. When our sins and our idols leave us exhausted, he offers to lift us up, forgive our sin, and restore our strength. So, what makes the difference between those who are judged and destroyed versus those who receive comfort and restoration? The answer is found in the very last verse of this chapter. Verse 31. They who wait for the Lord, for Yahweh, shall renew their strength. And so we must ask, it is critical at this point that we ask, what does it mean to wait for Yahweh? This is what makes all the difference. What does it mean to wait? Let's start there. What does it mean to wait? Waiting is a passive action. That is, the very nature of waiting requires us to be dependent on another. It means we're not sufficient in ourselves. It means we don't have control. It doesn't matter if we love that or hate that, we're dependent either way. So when your car breaks down and you're sitting on the side of the road waiting for your friend to show up, that's waiting. Or if you're single and you're, you've tried out the dating scene again and again and it's not working and so you want to give up, but you don't want to give up, that's waiting. And when someone you love walks out the door and you don't know when or if they're ever coming back through it, that's waiting. And waiting doesn't mean doing nothing. But waiting does mean 
that what needs to be done is something that you can't do. Here is what not waiting sounds like. My way is hidden from Yahweh, and my right is disregarded by my God. That's independence, and that's untrue. That's not waiting. But here is what waiting sounds like. I need you, God. I can't do this on my own. I'm a tired, lost sheep with insufficient strength and a broken heart. Please, would you come to me? Would you carry me? I'll be right here until you do because I have nowhere else to go. That's waiting. So all of us have to wait. We don't have a choice about waiting. That's part of what it means to be human. The question is, who are you waiting for? In this chapter, Isaiah has systematically torn down the things that we might be tempted to wait for. Nations and their rulers, kings, presidents, courts, whatever, whatever has power, they're all simply drops from a bucket and dust on a scale. And planets and stars and galaxies and gravity make life possible, but these are all mere creations of one who is greater. And idols, which are basically the catch-all for anything and everything created that we might be tempted to wait for, are themselves blind, deaf, and immobile. They're just pretty-looking wood and metal. None of these are worth waiting for because none of these will ever arrive. But Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. Thus, with these words, the Judean exiles in Babylon would have been reassured to wait. Yahweh is coming. Soon her warfare will have ended, and her iniquity will have been pardoned, and the glory of Yahweh would be revealed. And it was. It happened years later, when they were at last freed, from the Babylonian exile. But it happened years again. After that, years afterwards. It happened again. That time was when they were at last freed, not from the Babylonian exile, but freed from the power of sin. That came during what we heard about this morning. That's what we call Advent. It means waiting. They were waiting for Yahweh to come again. And that season was heralded by the words from this chapter that we just read. In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In all four Gospels, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of these words from Isaiah 40 are referenced as the message being carried by the man we call John the Baptist. John was saying that the waiting was almost over. And then it was. It was over. Yahweh came at last in comfort and in power. The everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, whose understanding is unsearchable, had come at last to carry his lambs. But he didn't come as most people had expected. He came as a man. A man named Jesus. 
a carpenter's son from the little town of Nazareth. And so many were surprised and even offended when Jesus began preaching the message that Yahweh is a very, very big God and I am he. I am his appointed Christ, the king you have been waiting for. And after just a few short years of preaching that message, his people, his own people, Yahweh's people, to whom he had come to comfort and speak tenderly, killed him for his efforts. All that time spent waiting for him, and they got it all backwards. Instead of beholding their God, they killed him. Instead of every mountain and hill being made low, they brought him low through beatings, humiliation, and a mockery of a trial. Instead of every valley being lifted up, it was he who was lifted up on a wooden cross where he died. But it was there on that cross that what appeared to be the epitome of humiliation and defeat was in actuality nothing less than the glory of Yahweh being revealed. The waiting was over. And so from then until now, to all those who by faith put their trust in Jesus Christ, your waiting is over. Your warfare has ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. But here's the thing about Yahweh's unsearchable understanding. He's rarely content, it seems, to have his perfect prophecies fulfilled only once. He's far too creative for that. And by that I mean that, yes, your waiting is over, but no, your waiting is not over. Just as the Judeans were waiting to return from the Babylonian exile and were eventually freed to do so, but they also knew they had to continue waiting for Yahweh to arrive, and he did in the person of Jesus, so it is today. Our waiting for Yahweh to arrive is over. Jesus Christ has come. He's paid for the sin of all who trust in him, and he was taken up into glory. But... We have to continue waiting for Yahweh to arrive because he's coming again one last time. And this time, things will be different. This time, Yahweh will not come quietly as a baby in a distant manger. This time, the full unveiled glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. No one will miss it. No one could miss it. In that day, no man's way will be hidden from Yahweh. And so in terror, some will even cry out for those mountains that have been leveled to come and crush them to death, lest they have to face the fierce wrath of Yahweh. But you don't have to do that, friends. That's not the only option. Do you not know? Do you not hear this? Wait for Yahweh. Humbly, patiently, purposefully wait for Yahweh. Put your faith, your hope, your trust in him. And so whether you've known this all your lives, or you're hearing it for the very first time today, wait for Yahweh. Trust in his appointed king, servant, and conqueror. You can forever be restored.